Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Today we're talking with Gina Kim, the Chief Product Officer at Cohere Health. Gina's work focuses on improving how patients experience healthcare by aligning all of the stakeholders in the puzzle that is the patient journey. So that includes payers, physicians, and the patients themselves to find optimal care paths for people and then collaborate from there. She opens up about what it's like to grow a startup and how she stays grounded through it all. She's pretty awesome. So let's get started. Welcome. We are here with the Hit Like a Girl podcast again. My name is Joy Rios. I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, Sharice Maynard. And today as our guest, we have Gina Kim. And Gina, I am so excited to get to know you a little bit better. Can you please take a moment for to help our listeners understand who you are and what is your piece of the health IT puzzle? Like, what is your part of the healthcare ecosystem that we need to know about? Sure. Thank you for having me. I'm just thrilled to thrilled to be talking with you. And what a great mission for this podcast too, to really be, you know, reaching out to to, to girls and and women who are looking to have you know great careers in health, healthcare IT. So, my little corner of the healthcare world is really digital startups and product management to really improve healthcare using technology. And I'd say my um, my focus for the last ten years has really been in improving how patients experience healthcare. So I had an early career which was in consulting and mechanical engineering, but for the last little while I've been in healthcare IT. So I started at Castlight Health, which was focused a lot on cost transparency and consumerism, and that really spoke to me because it's about how you know if you're a family and you're trying to make a decision about healthcare, like of course you need to know how much it costs and what the quality is, and so since then I think like been on a series of kind of very mission driven with mission driven organizations looking at problems like patient access, looking at problems like health in the home, and then looking at problems most recently at Cohere around the way that the prior authorization system works. And all of these sound like they're kind of challenging, complex systems, but at the end of the day, they have some human impact on the way that that people make decisions about their care. So that's my little corner. No, that's so, okay. So we've been talking a lot about insurance lately on our journey mm-hmm. and trying to help people even understand it, take a grasp of like what goes on behind the scenes. So somebody doesn't who doesn't what prior authorization is. Can you just talk about that? Like for a layperson, what does that even mean? Yeah. So 
Healthcare is complicated. And I think one of the things that makes it really complicated is the way that healthcare is paid for. Unlike most things where, you know, you make money, you have a budget, you figure out how you're going to pay, you take care of it yourself. And maybe sometimes you'll get a loan from the bank. Healthcare doesn't work like that, right? Healthcare is about risk. And so what you have is, you know, you have a health plan that is looking across a whole population of people and trying to decide they're trying to ensure that the people who need the care, there's money to pay for that care. And that care is being delivered at a really high quality. And you also have providers who are trying to do the same thing for patients, right? You go to your doctor and that provider says, hey, this is the course of treatment that I believe that you need to be on based on my expertise and training. And prior auth is a process where the two of these come together, where the doctor at the provider side says, this is what the patient needs. And there has to be an agreement over whether or not that, that service will be paid for. So there's a process called prior authorization where the doctor sends over all that information to the health plan and the health plan reviews it and decides whether or not they will pay for it and then gets that determination back to the doctor and the patient. And I know the way that I just expressed it sound makes it sound like, oh, of course, like this is how it happens, but it is a really frictionful process. Nobody really likes it, you know, and it has a lot of challenges, you know, in part because of some systemic issues. And, you know, I think from like the problem that the approach that we're trying to take at Cohere is really that, you know, there are a lot of stakeholders, the patient, the provider, the, the doctor and the health plan that all need to make this work because at the end of the day, the way that we pay for care requires, you know, that there's this kind of alignment so that the patient can get the best care that they need. So knowing what you know, and I know that there's a lot of patients that might get stuck and like, hey, I think I and or like I need this care, but then the insurance company says I disagree. Is there anything, any advice you could give for patients to kind of navigate that system to make sure, I don't know, like what, that they know like either what questions they should be asking of their doctor or what they should know before saying yes or seeking care. I don't know. Yeah, it's such a great question. And, you know, like I think the unfortunate thing about our system a little bit is it puts so much of that already on the patient, right? Like even when I was talking about cost transparency, like this idea that you have this system, it doesn't quite talk to each other. It's not well coordinated. And then at the end of the day, it's like the patient who has to pick up the pieces or like maybe, you know, you are doing that on behalf of someone in your family, like your mom or your dad, or, you know, something like that. So like, it's already unfortunate that the patient kind of has to bear so much of this. And the advice I would give is really around, you have to know what the policies are and you have to get down back to the policy level. And it is going through the paperwork, unfortunately, right? So every health plan will post the documents that say what they will cover, at least like the guidelines for that. And they will try to, you know, make that as friendly as possible. You know, obviously at Cohere, we believe there are ways that we could make that even more accessible to patients. But that's the place to start to understand, you know, what is it that they'll cover? And those policies are based on evidence, you know, and so understanding the evidence behind that is helpful. And then I think it's like really working with the doctor, you know, and often, you know, provider groups now have a lot of expertise on what will get, you know, prior auth, what will not. You have to kind of understand too with your doctor, like, you know, okay, why is it that I need this procedure? What is the evidence behind this? And I think the patient can also decide, like, based on what they're learning, hey, do I really need this procedure? Do I not? If you, and then if you really need it, you know, I think that you can work with the doctor and the health plan. And often, you know, you can also call the health plan and, get more information and things like that. But but ultimately, I think it's you have to kind of educate yourself on that policy, 
educate yourself on the evidence and then you have to be able to advocate for yourself. And it's hard. Like, I'm not saying it's easy, right? Like it is, um, it is something that is challenging, even for people who are incredibly medically literate and as part of, you know, in the system, like you, you can talk, like we've talked to people who are nurses who, you know, suddenly like someone gets sick and they have to navigate this and it's not easy for them either. So, so I'm not saying there's a silver bullet here, but it's kind of, you know, you do the best you can. So, all right. So it's not necessarily sexy work, but it's something that needs to be done. And so your work at Cohere, can you talk about like products that you are developing? Are you making that process easier? Yeah, we are making that process easier. So the thought behind Cohere is really let's really align all of the stakeholders in this whole puzzle to the patient's journey. And I think it's the thought that the current system today is really built up on this transactions, right? Like you go for a visit and that's the visit and then you go for a surgery and that's a surgery and you go for a procedure, you go for a lab, right? Like all of these things are disparate, small services that are happening. But as a patient, it's one journey to you that you are going through and trying to navigate your way through this maze and if we could just get, you know, all of the, the health plan, the providers, you know, to align on the optimal care paths for people and then collaborate on that, you could, you know, stop a lot of the paperwork and the administrative burden that the providers have and the health plans have. But you could also just you make it a lot easier for the patients and everybody to see kind of have that transparency as to what's the best path for me. And so I think the work we're doing here is really around, you know, Number one, administ- like the administrative burden to the providers and the health plans, trying to fix that with, with using, using uh, technology. And then the second is, okay, now how do we actually you know, use analytics and use behavior change with patients and with providers and with health plans to you know, really start to drive more collaboration on, on these care paths, which are all based on evidence from you know, like leading medical societies and, and, and other places like that. So let me ask a question. I actually started out um, in pediatrics and I worked on both sides where I had to explain to parents of uh, medically fragile children how their benefits worked. And I also worked with providers where I had to explain to them things like the EOB and all that kind of stuff, which I totally did not get. But of course, and also we had the problem of EOBs being um, snail mailed and that type of thing. So we are moving into an area where we do have... um, EPAs or um, electronic prior offs and that type of thing, which makes things a little bit easier and can improve um, the problem of transactional inefficiencies. But going forward, do you think that part of Cohere's mission is probably educating providers on how the process is changing and how we're shifting from this kind of paper world into this digital world and how that all works and how it can simplify the whole process. Absolutely. And I think, it, you know, I would even go a step beyond education, but like, let's just make the process better. So I think the technology that we have, for example, if people put in a service that we have it coded up so we can understand all the evidence, we have evidence-based guidelines and we are able to just, as soon as somebody submits the authorization, we know a lot about the patient and we know a lot about their history. And we know we have, you know, their their prior claims. We have the clinical note that's coming over as part of this process. Let's actually treat this as a data problem to then say, should this be approved? And we can do it instantly. So our median time to approval is zero seconds because as soon as we can see that it's aligned to the evidence, we're able to approve. And so that takes a lot of the burden out of it for for providers. And it's a digital experience. We, of course, have we support, you know, phone and fax and, you know, more traditional ways of of doing it. 
But, you know, we believe this is one of these cases where technology and data are able to really help this problem um, that, that was so manual before and so painful before. So yes, we are excited to educate people about new ways of doing this. And we have great teams that you know work with our provider groups and help them understand. But we also we have a great design team that has designed software, which is really, it's easy to use. We have like really amazing satisfaction scores and things from our users. And they say, this is so easy, right? Like people don't design software for, for healthcare often that that has that kind of design mentality for users, as you, I'm sure you, you, you will know. And so it's an area we've made an investment because we believe if you can make it easy for people to do the right thing and, you know, have that be transparent, like good things happen just from there. Can I ask a, I don't think it's a dumb question. It's just a genuine question. How are people interfacing with your product? Is it like an API that's connected to the EHR and also the billing system? Is it a totally separate thing that somebody has to log into? Like, how is it integrating all of these different pieces of information? Yeah. How do they interact with it? We have a product which every practice actually has portals and things like that that they go to. So we do have a portal and that's the way that, you know, most people still engage Actually, you know, some still go to fax, some still go to phone, but the portal is the main thing. But then we also, we've built in a lot of interoperability. So we have APIs. We also have the ability to kind of reach into an EMR and um, and get the note where a provider, you know, kind of authorizes us to do that. And the, the harder part is actually like, it's not so much like the connection to the, to the EMR. I think it's more actually, we are already getting the clinical note manually as part of this. And so how do you actually work with that data, right? Like it's, you know, something comes in on a fax or something comes comes in um, as a PDF. How do you work with it? And so our team has built up a lot of the, you know, machine learning models and other technology that actually help to extract the information from that and then help us to use that as part of this prior auth process to make it, you know, much more seamless and easy for the provider. So I think, you know, interoperability and EMR integration is part of that. I think the world is headed towards you know, systems where people almost like invisibly are able to get the auth. But what we have actually heard from our, a lot of our customers is like, please, like, don't get me involved in another EMR project. Like they are, they're really taxing actually. And like practically speaking as well, there's a division between work that a clinician does and work that administrative people do. That's a reality in, in healthcare. And so you know, I think it's a little bit naive to say, oh, once everything's in the EMR, it's going to be amazing, right? Like everything will happen from there. But actually, like those of us with scars on our back working with you do one EMR integration, you've done one. Like, and, you know, and a single health system may have eight instances of, of an EMR and you have to figure out a way to, to work with that. So for us, I think the question is like, what's the solution that's going to work for everybody off the bat already, you know, improves their, their workflow already, you know, gets patients seen faster because they can be scheduled faster because you've gotten them the right approvals instantly. And if you can solve that, the EMR piece is like, you know, cherry on the cake and the next piece that we can solve. But I think we feel really good about kind of the the approach that we've taken that can improve things for 100% of providers. Okay. Well, I don't know if you saw the um, last um, AMA um, survey, but for that survey, 30% of the um, physicians that they surveyed said that their patients had negative outcomes due to the um, PA requirement. I'm yeah. wondering, are you guys able to actually show how your product impacts those scores or how you're able to change outcomes for people in a way that doctors can actually see and measure? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a couple pieces to that. And that AMA survey is, you know, like they they run that every year. And every year I'm like, oh, I wish this problem were getting better, right? And so I'm, I'm happy that, you know, we can, we can be part of that solution. So one is that, you know, we have uh, just by authorizing care instantly to be that's aligned to the evidence, what you're able to do is get that patient seen faster. And I think like one of the questions on that AMA survey is like, you know, how much has the patient been delayed? And have you seen delays in care? And so delays in care is a quality metric that, that you can measure. But the second piece is around the appropriateness of the care, right? So and this is a harder problem. It's how do you identify the appropriate variation in care? Like where is it that you have you know, a patient that is part of a cohort that should be on a different care path, right? Like there's a good example around something like joint surgery. There are some patients for whom conservative therapy will not help them. And so just by, you know, and a lot of um, prior models of step therapy essentially were to say, well, people have to go through this path, right? That was before you had analytics and a data approach that would allow you to have more personalization given a cohort. So then if you're able to say, hey, this patient maps to this cohort and therefore they should have a different decision and therefore they are getting the right services that they need according to the evidence, that has a quality outcome. And so we're looking at ways to, you know, there are more standard quality outcomes, but looking at things like joint mobility. And at the end of the day, like, what does the patient care about? Like, hey, I can actually get out of bed. I can go, I can walk, I can get to the bathroom by myself. Like I can return to the activities of daily living. And so we're looking at ways that we can actually measure that as a way to to prove more of those outcomes. But certainly on process outcomes like time to decision, you can also look at uh, you know more um, standard claims based outcomes. Like you know, I think we can we can show we have we have good evidence around the um, around the impact we have. So I always say that regulation never keeps up with innovation. I'm wondering when you look at things like time to um, approval and that type of thing, do you see those not only the innovation changing in the next 18 months. Do you see regulation changing in a way that benefits the patient changing much in the next um, 18 months to five years? Yeah. So I think what's really interesting here is, you know, this has been such a pain point for everybody that I think prior authors really like come to the top of a lot of, um, you know, regulatory agendas. And so you see it on the federal level, the previous administration actually announced a rule that was around interoperability in prior auth, for example, and also had things in there like the prior auth must be done within three days for an expedited case or seven days for, for a standard case. And you see also state legislatures taking this on. So you have Texas and other other folks that are you know looking to even exclude like, the you know, really the gist of the laws are if a provider is proven to, um, you know, for like 80 percent of the time, get a prior, you know, have approved services, they should be exempted from the process, you know, for one or two years, right? So it's really trying to get to the burden. When I look at these approaches, I think, you know, it's really laudable that people, smart people everywhere are trying to solve this problem. And so that part is great. I do think like we could aim higher, right? Like, so seven days for prior auth, like we're talking about like, let's, we do 90% of ours, 80 to 90% of ours instantly, like that should be the bar, right? Like let's find ways that it's not rooted in the past where this was thought of as a manual process, a, you know, this is a, an administrative process. Let's think of this as a clinical, you know, and a data problem. And if you do that, I think it can really, you know, unleash kind of the, the creativity that, that people can bring to a problem like this. And so I think the, you know, legislature, legislature 
the regulatory approach is like they are absolutely moving in the right direction. I do think like, you know, this is an area that the private sector can can bring a lot as well. Do you think that um, AI can solve some of these um, problems? I ask you this because, you know, in the past, and it's not the not so um, distant past, we had, um, you know, CMOs sitting in an office deciding on care. Do you think we could develop an algorithm that says, hey, this should be approved in real time? Because that, to me, I've always thought that that would solve the problem. If we could build out a model that says, hey, if these parameters are met and alleviate some of the biases associated with algorithms, if we could do that, then a simple equation could solve the problem of pre-auth, don't you think? I do. And actually, I think what you said there, that last point, simple things can solve the problem of pre-auth. I think simple things get us 80% of the way there. So simple rules-based approaches get you pretty far, right? And they're easier to implement and they're not hiding behind a black box. And I know people throw around AI like, you know, it's going to solve world hunger, but it's just not true, right? Like, and you're, you also raise the problem of bias. That's a really important one. Like that's, so I'm sure you've read a lot of the literature around the bias that goes into, especially if around, uh, you know, minority populations and picking up features that may not really be correlated. So I, to me, it's, AI is a little bit of a smokescreen. It, it's an incredibly, machine learning is a very, very powerful technique, but you have to use it responsibly and judiciously and like really pointed at a problem where it actually can be solved. So again, like we want to solve this for 100% of, of people. AI is really good for, you know, smaller problems, pattern exploration, things like that. But at the end of the day, these are medical decisions. They are things that, you know, this impacts the care. Like this could be your father, your child, your mother, right? But whose livelihood could depend on this decision. So do you really want to outsource that to a machine? I, you know, like my personal philosophy is like not so much. Like I really still feel that we need to have AI or other approaches be supportive of physicians who can really make the decision. So it can be an aid, but it should never replace. And then the models themselves, like they should be explainable. You know, they should be things that, you can understand the logic that that goes behind them, right? You understand which variables and what the weightings are and things like that so that people understand the decisions or the recommendations that are being made from these engines. So I think AI has a way to go, a ways to go before it can really be responsibly be used in, you know, such a sensitive and really important process. But it's, you know, we have a great ML team. They are focused on like some problems that we think are really interesting and where where we believe it can it can make a difference. It's not like the, you know, the white horse that comes in and like saves everything. Like I think like we there's a lot a lot we're able to do, you know, and then AI kind of supplements that approach. I feel like I've already learned a lot just in this <laughs> Sorry, I talk talk really fast. No, no, no. I totally love it. And I'm like, okay, let me take it all in. This is amazing. But I want to learn a little bit more about you specifically. And I'd like to know a little bit more about your particular career journey and your path. And if somebody were to follow in your footsteps, like, has it been linear? Has it been all over the place? Like, did you know when you were 10 what you wanted to do? Can you maybe talk about what is it like to have your job and how did you get it? If somebody wanted your job, what would they have to do to get it? (laughs) Sure. So I can talk about my job. So I'm chief product officer at a really exciting, you know, growing startup and, you know, growth stage company actually now. So we've raised our series B not to get to insider lingo on the investing side, but, and I build, I help build products, right? Then, And I also help build companies. And so I think my job is a combination of strategy. So, you know, where 
what should our company do? What should we invest in? How do we, and then there's um, also the, you know, people side of things, like let's build a team with a great culture. Let's, you know, get in the best people we can, like to make this like a really great place to work. And then there's product, like how do we actually launch products that actually solve problems for people, solve the right problems and do it in the right way. And then there's process for me, which is like, you know, how we work is almost as important as like what we work on and why we work on it. So that, you know, my job is kind of looking across all of those, those elements and, you know, being on a leadership team and working with our board and talking to customers and working with users. I mean, so it's a, it's a pretty fun job. I, I, I can't lie. I think like my path here has been like you asked if it were linear, it was linear. It was completely non-linear. Like whatever footsteps I have, if people were actually following them around, it would probably look like a giant muddle. So I started life, I will say it. So my mom is a nurse. So that's how I got interested in healthcare in the first place. And when I was in high school, like my, one of my first jobs was actually taking medical records out of a basement and putting them on a cart. And, you know, that would get, that cart would get like shipped up to the, up to the floors and then they would get shipped back and I would go file them again. So that was like my, probably my first exposure to, actually, I guess I can say I've been in medical records for a really long time. So always have had an interest in, in healthcare. And when I went to college, I thought I wanted to be a biomedical engineer. So I went and I studied mechanical engineering at MIT and I realized when I was there that I just, I was more interested in kind of the people and the systems of things as opposed to like working on designing a specific part of a, you know, I'd had great internships and, you know, research opportunities. But at the end of the day, like, I think I was more cut out for the business world. And so then I went into management consulting and I did that for five years and had a great experience there. I think learning a lot about different organizations, how they work, and it was a great experience. And then then I kind of got itchy to go back to building things as opposed to just advising. So that's when I would really say like this last run of my career has been it working in roles, different roles, and successively kind of tackling different problems, you know, in healthcare and in digital health. So it's always had kind of a like, you know, Always, I'm looking for like an interesting problem and then a great team. And then product management has been the thing that's been really fun for me building software because it's like, you know, like it's agile. You can find a problem, you can test stuff. I love the design side of things as well. We have a great design team, I think I've already mentioned, and a great product team here and a great engineering team. So, like, you get all this collaboration, you get the clinical people coming in, and like, it's a really fun place to be. So, I don't know if I have any guidance for people who like want to follow my path, but I feel like product is one of these jobs that there's no traditional path. Like I have worked with people who have been engineers and have come into it. I've worked with people who've been consultants, business consultants who have come into it. People who like one of my product directors has a painting like background and then did operations and like lived in Japan for three years and came back. I mean, like people have these really interesting paths, but at the end of the day, I think like what makes someone interested in product is like they're somewhat technical, they, they really care about people, and then they have business sense. And if you bring those three together, it's like a magical combination. I love that. Okay, thank you for that. So it sounds like you get very stimulated by all sorts of intakes and inputs. But what do you do to calm yourself down? What do you do to stay balanced when you're not working? How do you spend your time to kind of just keep your own internal peace? 
I'm not sure that's ever been anything I've been very good at. So um, I will say what you see is kind of what you get. I get I get enthusiastic about a lot of things, but I think on the personal side, so I have, I'm married, I have two kids, they're young, they're six and four, and I love them to pieces. And so I think a lot of my home life is actually like corralling them, you know, like going to the park, um, doing things like that. And then I'm also a musician. And so, um, you know, playing music is something that just, it's almost very spiritual for me. Like, you know, you get into the flow of something. It's like, it's art. It's something very outside of kind of the day to day. And, you know, it gives you perspective, I think, when you have an outlet like that. So, so yeah, I think getting outside, playing with the kids and then getting a chance to play music when I very rarely get a chance to do that is, um, is really fun for me. I totally get you. So what is the, what's your instrument? I play violin and piano and lately I've been playing more piano. I love piano. Oh, what do you, do you play something? I play some piano and I, I don't share this super widely, but I learned how to play the bass so that I could be oh. my own in my own wedding band. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so amazing. That is great. I played just for a year so I could like practice the songs that I was going to play. And then I essentially haven't played it since, but I know what you mean. It's, it's like a whole, using a whole different side of your brain and is very calming and yeah, but yeah, I, I have a piano at home and I play it as often as I can. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, Gina, one of the things we ask everybody is, what's one mindfulness thing you do every day to keep you focused? Mindfulness. I probably could say I could be more, <laughs> I could always be more mindful. But so one thing I do is at the beginning of the day, I do kind of like try to take a step back. So like no matter like how stressful things are or, you know, what is going on that day or what I'm nervous about, just like try to take a breath and like just appreciate, you know, and be grateful for the opportunities I have and the life I have. I think, you know, like I have a lot of gratitude for my parents and my kids and my husband and like all, all of that, you know, the great people I work with. And so I think that that helps me stay grounded because even if the day kind of goes south or gets away, you know, like I think starting the day with something that really grounds you and keeps you positive, I think that that's helpful for me. At the end of the day, like, I think this is a little bit less meditative, but I just really enjoy having dinner with my kids. I mean, even if they're screaming and even if they're, you know, being a little bit obnoxious, I probably shouldn't say that, but, uh, but you know, like just that family time is, is also really grounding for me. I love it. Well, thank you for spending your time with us today. If somebody wanted to follow you or work with you or understand more about Cohere, how would they get in touch? How would they do that? Yeah, so I think on the Cohere side, so we have coherehealth.com and have a Twitter feed and we've got LinkedIn and everything. So I think um, you know you can find us there. And I, for me personally, LinkedIn is probably the, the place to go. So yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for taking the time and letting us get to know you a little bit better. This has been a real pleasure and yeah, we just appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for taking time. It was uh, great to, great to chat with you. So have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon.